Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview policymakers, scholars, entrepreneurs, and business executives、uh, to talk about policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao.、Uh, today, we're going to talk about energy,、uh, climate change, businesses, and、uh, here in the studio with me is Andrew Winston. He is a prolific writer, a consultant, and a globally recognized. Expert on how companies can navigate and profit from the climate change.、Uh, Andrew's first book, Green to Gold, was the top-selling green business title of the last decade, and his latest book, The Big Pivot, provides a practical roadmap to help leaders build resilient, thriving companies and communities in a volatile world today.、Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You、and、forgot the most important part of my bio. Then on Princeton, yes, class of '91. <laughs> yeah, exactly.、Uh, so. Uh, so so happy to have you back on campus,、yeah. and also、uh, with me co-、uh, co-hosting this episode is my friend Owen.、Uh, he is also a junior at Princeton and very interested in energy issues, and helped us write most of those questions and expand this segment on policy punchline. So thanks so much for being here with me, Owen. Of course, happy to be here.、Uh, so Andrew, why don't we just start with the most broad question that we、yeah. could ask you about? Like, what do you do? What are some of your thoughts on on those issues?、Uh, Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your your several books,、uh, yeah. Green to Gold, Green Recovery, The Big Pivot,、uh, and some of those issues、sure. that we're talking about? Sure,、here. happy、yeah. to. So、uh, my background was in business, and、um, I came out of Princeton and was in the consulting world at you know Boston Consulting Group, and then was in big companies for a while. And long story short, had kind of a value shift、um, after a number of years in business, and wanted to find a way to marry kind of a passion and interest about the environment and kind of where the world was headed. With business,、um, so I have degrees in 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 business and MBA and a degree in environmental management,、um, you know, from another Ivy League school in New Haven.、Uh, will remain nameless, and I have spent the last you know 15 plus years, maybe more now, working with companies, writing books, writing articles, speaking around the world, helping executives and companies really understand the world's megatrends, you know, with a real focus on environmental and social issues, climate change. The rise of the clean economy being, you know, two of the biggest, and and what I think we'll we'll talk about mainly today, and help companies、uh, see sustainability as core to their business, as the way companies can profit, and not only can but kind of need to today. That the challenges we face are so great that the way business is done is really got to change, and you know, I, this has been a, a quite a journey for like 15 plus years, seeing、um, the topic of climate and sustainability. In business, really evolve、um, quite a bit in the last 15 years, from being something kind of alien to business to being right at the core of the discussion today.、Um, so I work with companies in a lot of ways. I consult directly.、Um, I, like I said, I do a lot of speaking and I do a lot of writing, trying to put out ideas and frameworks and you know inspiration to get companies to think differently about how they create value fundamentally and how they help build a thriving world and and their role in society. That's the kind of overarching question that companies face today in a really profound way. Um, and CEOs are talking about it a lot, and so that's you know that's the work I do is try to help them navigate that world and the pressures they're feeling to be、um, more thoughtful about about their role in society. Yeah, you mentioned that this shift has kind of happened over the past fifteen fifteen years, and since you published your first book back in two thousand six, what do you see as the major drivers behind the increasing awareness around environmental governance and? In these large corporations.、Yeah. Well, actually, I forgot to answer your question about my books in the first part. So, just to say what they are, the the first one was Green to Gold, which is a really unsubtle name,、um, and works really well because a lot of it, people in business were feeling at that point like
um, pressure to be green was really anti-business. It was just going to cost money. And so I had many executives say, oh, gold, I like that. That's money. Green to gold. I like that. You know, And so it was about the fundamental ways that you create value by looking at your business through an environmental lens. You save money, you build your brand, you're more innovative, et cetera. And it sold a lot of copies, as, as the bio said, and it's still selling. It just actually got republished and translated in China. Um, it's being republished right now, you know, 13 years later. The second book was written during the recession about kind of the need to stay on course with green and how it could help us out of the recession. But the most recent one's The Big Pivot. It's actually five years old now, but it's, it's, it's again, kind of more timely now in a way than it was then. I was, I was ahead on a, on a bunch of things. And it's really about the nature of how much the, the core of the focus of business needs to flip from maximizing short-term profit first and foremost, which has been the, the kind of core shareholder primacy mission of business for the last 40, 50 years, and flip that to saying, we need to solve the world's problems. These are the biggest opportunities, the biggest you know threats, and we need to, in business, solve them and then work back from there to say, how do we do that most profitably? How do we... Um, how do we use capitalism and markets and competition to do it profitably uh, rather than getting to our shared challenges like climate change when we feel like it or when there's kind of enough pressure from you know, stakeholders? So you, know, you asked why are companies feeling this or what are the main pressures? And, and it, it does come down to these megatrends that I spent a lot of time working on and exploring. And they're, I mean, it sounds obvious, but they're real. The, the climate change discussion has moved in the last five years in particular from being a model for people to discuss about the future or a political debate to something that's happening right now and hitting business in a really profound and often very expensive way. And we can, we can talk about that. And it's, you know, it's just, we're seeing it, right? We're seeing um, towns burned down from wildfires. We're seeing entire communities destroyed by storms of, of a scale we've never seen before. It's just not something that's really debatable as much. Um, and I've seen an incredible demise in climate denial within business in the last couple of years. It's just almost disappeared. And that's kind of profoundly optimistic, I think, you know, that we're kind of past the point of debating whether it's something companies should be concerned about. You know, so there's there's that pressure about just the climate itself, but there's real concerns about resource pressure, water, and just all sorts of, you know, resources that our economy depends on and how hard they are to get increasingly. There's um, the rise of the clean economy and how cheap you know, renewable energy has become and how that's shifting entire industries really quickly. There's uh, generational pressure and it's you guys, frankly, the millennials and Gen Z and what they're doing to businesses, both as employees and, and kind of consumers. And we can talk about that because it's been a kind of profound shift. And then there's this kind of transparency that big data, AI, blockchain, all these tools are enabling as we gather an incredible amount of data about every product, every service. And that's enabled people to ask new questions about every product. So, so how does uh, Green to Gold, this sort of process actually happen? How, yeah. I mean, if I were a company, if I was CEO right now, how would you give me your, I guess, pitch in terms of what I can actually do to stay on, to become more environmentally f- friendly while also uh, making a lot of money? Yeah, I mean, look, the, again, there's always, there's still this assumption. It's, it's less and less, but there's still this assumption that if you pursue environmental performance it's somehow just a cost and there's a there's a kind of a history to that because environmentalism in business used to be just about regulations and you know avoiding getting fined and so it was really about spending to avoid things and and it's it's evolved more and more for you know for companies to see it as an opportunity to really create value so that the pitch really the business case is that 
you you can reduce costs dramatically. This is kind of a very basic thing in business to create value. You can cut emissions, cut energy, cut waste, cut water, and that just saves money, right? So that's that's kind of the easy pitch. And that's almost become so so much a given that that companies don't even think about that as sustainability or green anymore. They're like, well, of course we do that. But they didn't for a long time. And now, you know, cutting carbon has become a core thing. It's also a risk reduction strategy. There's amazing risk now in your supply chain in particular with companies that are under pressure from climate change, water shortages, pressure from their, you know, stakeholders to do better. Um, things like the, the social side, child labor, LGBT rights. I mean, there's a whole bunch of dimensions of how a business operates that companies that manage this stuff, um, it creates value for them to reduce risk. And then it drives innovation fundamentally. You know, you can be innovating to solve problems for people, to make products that are more efficient, that are more carbon efficient for your customers. That saves, that makes you money. And then there's kind of this brand value, this really big category of intangible value, which is your employees are loyal, your customers are loyal, you, you attract the best people, you have a license to operate from society. These are all the, the logic. Um, and that's that's the story that I've been telling for 15 years, and there's others out there as well. I will say in my experience that CEOs that kind of get it, um, they do get the business case, but it's actually not the most important thing to them in a way. They quite often have a very personal story about why they might really be pushing their business in a, in a kind of more sustainable direction. It can be the business case. It can be investors are asking them all the normal pressures. But there's also sometimes these stories of just their kids ask them or the young employees ask them. Like, this stuff really matters, like this kind of personal moments for leaders to, to get that there's kind of a legacy question. What are they doing in the world? And, and what does their business do? Yeah, that was awesome. Um, you mentioned some of the businesses and, and the ways that they're adapting. And we've researched and through your uh, articles and, and TED Talks, we've learned about Walmart and some other businesses that are doing great work yeah. that are moving the ball forward in this field. Could you maybe talk about some of your favorite examples yeah. and, and your favorite um, your favorite businesses that you're watching? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. The companies that are often talked about as doing the most, most work in sustainability um, have kind of been the same list for a while. And that's you could view that as good or bad. I mean, it's not strange maybe in other aspects of business like innovation that you keep bringing Apple up for years. So it's not necessarily bad, but it, it does indicate that there's not as much expansion into kind of new leaders as you'd hope. But the, the list of companies that you know most of us point to, um, there's the companies that are not public, so they have a lot more leeway. So there's companies like Interface Flooring in Georgia that has been incredibly innovative about carpet. It seems like a strange category, but it's a petrochemical-based product. And They've set a goal for years now, 20-plus years of being carbon neutral. I mean, they were way ahead of the curve. And then more well-known is Patagonia, which is, I think, in many ways, the, the, the best performer. And, and they have that leeway, right? They're owned by basically one guy, his family. And they mean it when they say things like, don't buy this jacket if you don't need it. Like, they're, they're attacking consumption. They're teaching people how to repair stuff. And yet they've quadrupled in size in the last four years. So there's a – last excuse me, the last 10 years. So there's a – interesting tension there. The companies that are doing the best actually are growing and using more and more stuff. But the big companies, um, yeah, you mentioned Walmart. I think there's always a lot of debates about that. Uh, when I'm on campuses, often um, students are unhappy if I say Walmart's done some good things because they've got issues with labor or healthcare. We should always remember that there's no, there's no perfect company like at all. And there's no monolithic company. There's things they do right. There's things they do, they do wrong. Some are further down the wrong spectrum than others. Um, 
But the, the company that's been kind of recognized over the last decade, pretty much every year as the leader, is Unilever. Um, and I was on their advisory board in, the, in North America for a number of years. I'm no longer. Um, so I'm not working directly with them right now. But there's a lot of reason they're always on, on top. They've, they made it their goal um, in 2010. The, the new CEO at the time started a, a new plan, a new initiative, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And what was unique about it was that it wasn't a side thing to their normal strategy or their normal core business. It was their strategy for the decade. Um, and they're coming to the close of that you know, in 2020. And their goal was to double the size of the business but cut their footprint in half. And they've just done things across every dimension of sustainability helping smallholder farmers around the world, women advance, you know, because they have um, all sorts of food and, and fish and other products in their supply chain. Um, and they've done things on their energy, on renewables, on political lobbying. They've been one of the leaders. They're just, they're kind of always on the forefront. Um, and they're not perfect. They make some products that, you know, have, have issues. And so they've been, a, I think, a real leader and always worth kind of looking at how they've done it. But there's more and more now. There's There's other really big companies that are um, doing some really cool things. And and now the number of companies committed to things like being 100% renewable, it's hundreds of companies now. So there's the standard or the table stakes for what it means to be an active climate company have moved dramatically. It, it seems that some of the companies that you kind of talked about, uh, whether it's Walmart or Unilever or uh, Patagonia, those seem to be more consumer yeah. sort of focused consumer products companies. What, what about the energy companies yeah. like ExxonMobil or like those fossil fuel players? I mean, do you see the pivot happening on, on them as well? Soon? Yeah, let me come back to the fossil fuel companies in yeah. a second and just say you're right. I, I didn't mention B2B. Another company I work with on, on their advisory board is Ingersoll Rand, and they're not well known as that brand. They, they make train. Um, it's air conditioning units. They sell like 40% of the HVAC systems in the U.S., one of the biggest, you know, cooling and heating companies in the world. And it's not a small issue. You know, 5% of global emissions is basically cooling. And um, because we're getting hotter, we're going to need more and more air conditioning units. Um, and so, like, if we don't figure out low-carbon air conditioning, we're done. Like, it's actually one of the main things that has to happen. And they've been uh, advanced thinkers, and their CEO really gets it. They're out front. Their products, they're, they're moving more and more efficient. They're making these low global warming potential gases for their coolants. They're doing incredible work. So the B2B space is, is very um, creative and innovative, and they're serving their big business customers, especially in things like auto, you know, automotive, buildings, you know, where the, in, you know, food and ag, where the big footprint is. Now, we could have a lot of conversations about the fossil fuel companies. Um, look, there's just a fact, whether you... Um, like them or not, there's a fact that we have to get out of fossil fuels. Um, if we want to survive and thrive as a species, we need to, if you believe the science, which I do, we need to really decarbonize our society entirely over the next you know, 30 years, which is a big task, and take about half out of our annual emissions by 2030. And there's a lot of science and reports you know, on why that's the goal that it is, and it's really important, and we can, we can talk about that. But look, the fossil fuel companies... Um, they are still saying they're going to keep burning and keep, you know, exploring and finding more oil and gas. And I think it's it's insane. And it's also um, bad business there. And I think the investors are starting to push on this because they're putting hundreds of billions of capital expense into going to find more oil and gas that we will never use. And we will never use it for a couple of reasons. One is we can't from a climate perspective or, or we won't have a functioning society. But more importantly, the, the costs of the alternatives have dropped so fast I bought a new electric vehicle a couple months ago and drove it down here today. It is the mo the best ride I've ever had. It's the best car I've ever had. <laughs> They're just better. And 
lower maintenance, there's no oil, no cost. I mean, it's just we're winning. I mean, the, the, the renewable energy has won. It is the cheapest in almost everywhere in the world, and I can give you some stats on that. So fossil fuels are in trouble. Um, we still need them for now, and we should be thankful for what they did for getting us to a modern society. But the only companies that I've seen in that space that truly get it are the ones that have actually moved to close their fossil fuel business. So there's a company in, in um, Europe, used to be called Danish Oil Natural Gas, which was Dong, which is unfortunate in English. But um, they changed their name to Orsted, and they sold off all their oil and gas. Um, they've been selling off their oil and gas uh, assets for the last, and coal for the last 10 years. They're now the world's biggest um, producer of offshore wind. So they just said, we're going in a different direction. That's, I think, the only path really in the long run for the energy companies is to become different kinds of energy companies. Um, but look, they know what they know how to do. And that's the problem. There's huge inertia. They know how to build an oil platform. They know how to go dig up. And it's just a skill that we're not going to need in 20 years. I, I, I do want to know that I feel like so much of the narrative that we hear today, I mean, not just the, the fact that when businesses go more sustainable, it becomes uh, the incur more heavy costs on them. But, I th but it feels like everybody's saying that we need fossil fuel. We, we're still heavily dependent on them and the sort of the renewable energy won't be able to sustain us and and you know whether it's like solar panels on roofs or evs or um what's the what's the you know that wind the, farms the, and, exactly and and nuclear right people are saying we, we would need to go nuclear if we were tr really trying to sustain ourselves in a new renewable right. way so so you are saying that it's actually possible yeah to to just more fully rely on renewable energy well, yeah i mean well first of all it i keep coming back to the fact that it has to be like, th this is now a non-negotiable question. Um, we can't put as much carbon into the atmosphere as we've been doing um, and have a thriving society. We just can't. Um, we're already locking in some really, um, really damaging stuff in the world. You know, we're, we're heading towards two degrees Celsius, Celsius of warming probably easily. I think we're going to go past that most likely. Um, and that means things like there's no coral in the world and there's major cities like Miami that are probably not livable in the next, you know, 30, 40 years. And I've talked to the scientists behind this. I mean, these are not these are not extreme. Let's scare everyone. This is like reality now. We're going to have to kind of deal with it. So we have to. But but we're also you should know that already in the last three years, 70, 80 percent of the new energy put on the grid globally has been solar and wind like renewables have already won. It's just a matter of uh, over time taking taking share more and more from a grid and a power system that was built over 100 years. So it's not immediate. So people will say, oh, well, solar can't ever and wind can't ever power everything because it's only 1%, which is very strange because there was a point where like PCs were 1% versus typewriters and streaming video was 1% versus Blockbuster. Like there's always a point where it's small, and then it's, but it's growing really fast. And there are already days in, in the UK and Northern Europe where they basically get 100% of their energy from renewables. Now, there are issues um, with intermittency, as they call it. The wind does stop blowing. The sun goes down. But we actually know when the sun comes up and goes down. Like, it's a weird thing to act like we don't know that. And the storage, the batteries are getting so much cheaper that this is becoming very solvable. Um, and all the cars we're driving around are going to be mobile sources of storage as well. So I, I think there's very good evidence um, and lots of great studies that say we can at least get to an 80% renewable grid, really no problem. You've got big companies like National Grid out of the UK already saying we cannot, we, we think we can operate a, a fully renewable grid. This is the utilities. So what was a few years ago, oh, we don't know how we'd ever do this. It's happening. Nuclear is a different discussion. I, you know, I think um, 
I don't think we should be shutting down nuclear. We need zero carbon emission energy right now, but I don't think we're going to build any more. I mean, we expensive. probably need we probably need nuclear, right? I mean, I mean, Bill Gates and his whole Terra Power company, like the, the I mean, even in Taiwan, Taiwan is simply not will not able to sustain itself, like from an energy perspective, if it doesn't introduce um, nuclear, and, right? And and so you're saying that we won't build it anymore? Well, I think the reason nuclear is um, there hasn't been a nuclear plant basically built in the U.S. in years. There hasn't been a coal plant built. I mean, it's the economics. Now, China right now is building everything. And people point to that and say, oh, China's not doing enough. China's doing more than everybody. They're investing more than anybody in renewables. Um, and they do have plans to build a lot of coal plants, but those plans are slowing down. Like the, the planned expansion of coal is slowing rapidly. And they are building nuclear. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's an economic issue. It's incredibly expensive. It's, um, the insurance costs are huge. And you know, right or wrong, there's kind of the, the nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard. People are nervous about nuclear. So I think we have to keep it open. It's 20% of electricity in the U.S., 70% in France. We have to keep them open. You know, I think Germany made kind of a mistake because they tried to close coal and nuclear at the same time, which is very, very difficult. So I think we'll keep nuclear for a long time. We're going to, you know, shut down. Coal is dying incredibly fast. Over time, natural gas, and then eventually maybe nuclear will be shut down as well. Yeah, so you've mentioned a bunch of the nations like uh, the United Kingdom, Denmark, Sweden, Northern European nations, and China who have benefited from political incentives that might uh, encourage them to invest in these renewable technologies. And you've said before that the government should play a large role in this transition to a more sustainable future. What specific policy ideas would you set forth if you were in the government today and what roles can federal and local governments play to facilitate a transition? You know, it's, it's an important question. I think, you know, my whole work has been on the private sector. And, and because that's what I know, that's where I've worked, and that's where I think um, a lot of the innovation and, and you know, progress will happen. That said, um, what's become a very big topic lately in corporate sustainability and climate action is lobbying and political influence. It's something I'm writing about a lot more, something NGOs have turned to, after years of pushing companies to do better, they're now realizing we're late on this climate thing. So we need systemic change, and that requires policy. So um, I have written about this a lot, and I'm writing a long piece right now for Harvard Business Review um, about the ways companies can use their kind of influence in many ways to, to drive climate change. And the, a big one is political influence. So the policies that we need, it's not a very complicated list. There's a new book out that I just saw on um, kind of the climate policies. There's, there's economic signals. You know, I'm an economist. I got an economics degree here at Princeton. Um, you know, there's economic signals, which is a fancy way of saying like a price on carbon, um, you know, pricing the things that we don't want more of and making things cheaper that we want more of. So moving subsidies from fossil fuels to renewables, to EVs, um, that's kind of basic stuff, right? That's the biggest one. We have to put a price on carbon and it has to rise fast over the next decade. That will ripple through the economy and we will find cleaner ways even faster. Um, and there's other ways to, to do price signals. But then there's a, this standards that's always been a toolkit in policy, efficiency standards for buildings, for cars. You see the battle going on in this country over car fuel efficiency standards and the, the auto industry is totally split on this, um, which has been an interesting case study. Um, and then there's kind of enabling policies that we need. We need ways that drive capital into the market, that free up capital, that bring private capital into um, and public-private partnerships. And, and that's a little more complicated, but it could be investing in R&D at the national level or incentivizing R&D at the private sector level. 
um, ways that bring capital into this into this problem. And then I think there's a whole string of policies we need around the other side of this, which is adaptation and resilience. Like how do we make cities uh, thrive when the sea levels are rising and parts of them are going to be flooded? There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done um, to prepare for that. And I think that's where governance gonna, government's going to come in. You know, if, if millions of people are going to have to move from coastal properties, we're going to need to come together and figure out what that looks like. Yeah, you mentioned uh, as an economist, you're thinking about this from an economics point of view and and the public-private sector and how those two can merge to help create change. The Chinese government has been given as an example as a government that's given a lot of money to this sector, that's put a lot of its own money into the research, and they've gotten huge results in terms of the, the uh, private sector benefits. So um, in your view, when you're looking at some of these let's say, policies that are put forth by maybe the Democratic candidates, mm-hmm. which do you see as as um, as realistic? A lot of them have faced harsh criticisms yeah. from professors at our own school, from experts in the region. But is there any ones that you're looking at and saying, hey, this public, uh, this public funding is what we need, this public funding is what we want? Or perhaps are you looking at them and saying, you know, this is actually a little too much, or right. perhaps this is going a little bit too far? Um, so you're asking about the Green New Deal, basically. <laughs> I mean, so look, it's a co- it's a long conversation. Let me let me say about China that um, it's a weird time actually because they've been able to invest and create you know green infrastructure um, because they have a lot more control over their citizenry and so they can build high speed rail by just moving people. There's stuff that we can't do, and so it allows them to build entire industries quickly. And they did did build the world's largest solar and wind industry, and they're the biggest buyer of it in you know seven years or something. And they were nowhere 10 years ago, and now they're the dominant player. So, And they're spending hundreds of billions of dollars. So that, that matters, right? It's, it's government action. In a, in a more democratic or republic framework, it's different, right? We, we have to kind of agree on some things. Like the Green New Deal is, is a complicated conversation. I think what's great about it is it's talking at the scale we need to be talking about. Um, I, I truly believe that climate change is an, is an existential threat to humanity. It is kind of the big test um, of whether we can come together. At a time, historically, where we are swinging, um, we're still kind of in this swing towards an every-man-for-himself society, all the, all the nationalist and populist movements around the world that have come up so fast in the last few years are really at a horrible time when it comes to these global challenges because we need to be coming together and everyone's kind of pulling back into their own world, you know, very much isolationist. Um, so that's a challenge. I, what I love about the Green New Deal is that it, it, the scale of it, right, to say we got to be thinking big. we got to retool society. we got to retool the economy. That's true. We have to decarbonize. That's going to be retooling. Um, what people have criticized is that it kind of brings in all these social agendas and healthcare and jobs. I, I, I've kind of been on both sides of that. I think there's some really, really interesting logic to it that, again, we need to come together. So you need, you need kind of everybody on board. And part of what brings everybody on board is they see their own economic interests reflected. They see that there's jobs in it. They see that they're going to get health care or whatever. And so maybe it's overreaching. The, the, the question you're partly asking about all these multi-trillion dollar plans from you know Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, I just will say that what's very strange when we talk about sustainability and climate action that doesn't happen in most other dimensions is someone says this is 16 trillion and everyone just hears cost it's like but what is that saving it's an investment we make investments all the time and there's this incredible myth that's still very prevalent that tackling climate change will be too expensive it's going to destroy the economy 
it is so clear now that do not doing anything is way more expensive. We're already seeing that expense, you know, both at the national level, hundreds of billions of damage from extreme weather um, across the world, and even just at the microeconomic level. AT&T has said in the last few years, extreme weather has cost them $800 million. That's a lot, even for a company the size of AT&T, and they say it's climate-related. Big reinsurance companies spending a fortune on these, these damaging storms. So the cost of doing nothing is actually far higher. So we, we always talk about it in this strange way in companies too. We're going to spend a you know a billion dollars making our business more energy efficient. People, oh that's expense. It's like, well, what are you getting out of it? What's the net present value? What's what's the benefit over over the long haul? What does that ten or fifteen trillion mean in terms of benefits to society and the economy down the road? It could be twenty trillion, thirty trillion, and and we're just we don't seem to be good at talking about the full kind of life cycle cost of of these big choices that we need to make. What, what about the lobbying effort that's sort of countering this? I mean, I think we read some stat, uh, some stat that said uh, the largest five stock market listed oil and gas companies spend nearly $200 million a year lobbying to delay control block policies to tackle climate change, uh, including Chevron, BP, ExxonMobil. Um, you know, how, how, how do we counter that? It just seems to be such a dominant force. Well, this is what I was saying before about this new kind of new dimension of what is expected of companies or being asked of companies on is to use their political influence. Because um, there's kind of a, a famous line. I've, uh, I've talked to Senator um, Sheldon Whitehouse, um, which is a funny name for a senator who's not actually running for president. Uh, he's been giving speeches pretty much weekly on the floor of the Senate for years about climate. He's been ahead and he's not well known. And he has said this in many different ways that whenever there's a discussion about climate or an or environmental or energy law, He's like, basically, the bad guys show up in force. You know, the guys that want to keep things the same, they show up with this $200 million a year or whatever they're spending. And he says, everybody else doesn't. And, and so, you know, he's saying, where's everybody else? And that's why there's so much discussion now about how do you get companies to actually go lobby for pro-climate policies? Because we are seeing basically one sector go and push on these issues and try to stop you know, even though Exxon and others have said climate change is real, we're in favor of a price on carbon, when there's actually one proposed anywhere, they spend money to fight it. So it's kind of BS, right? I mean, they're saying they want one, but they never want one in reality. Um, and so we need everybody else, the other companies, to realize that their future is at stake and they need to fight for the policies that are going to you know, kind of help, help us build a thriving world and make their businesses uh, more profitable and thriving over time. So they have to come to the table. And and do it in a in a more kind of focused way. In uh, chapter eleven of the Big Pivot, you mentioned that sometimes companies explain their expenditures in lobbying as uh, perhaps not they don't actually know where that lobbying money is going towards in some in somewhat of a oh if I can't see it it's not happening <laughs> type of way. Has your views on that situation um, changed at all in terms of how you see these companies and their lobbying efforts? Yeah, look, there is a left hand right hand problem a little bit. It's a little it's somewhat of a cop out in many companies. They can say, oh, we didn't realize. It's weirder when they say, oh, we didn't realize what our own government relations people were doing, which sometimes they say. But it's more they usually are talking about the trade associations or the big. Um, you know, bodies that are representing their sector or them in, in, in negotiations with governments. So the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for example, has been a, a longtime kind of advocate of um, fighting climate policy. And companies uh, that are wanting 
to kind of see more aggressive climate policy have kind of been ignoring it. A few kind of pulled out of the Chamber of Commerce or pushed on the Chamber of Commerce. The interesting thing is just a couple of weeks ago, the Chamber of Commerce flipped. They flipped their their story about this for the, uh, it was, I think, kind of didn't get a lot of attention in the news, but they put out a statement that said climate change is real, humans are causing it, and we should be part of the Paris Climate Accord. That's a big change for them. Um, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, you know, I think enough pressure from within their their kind of companies. But look, it's still going on. There's companies with really aggressive goals. I, that's a lot of the work I do as a consultant is helping companies with vision and mission and goal setting. And they've got huge goals about cutting climate emissions, you know, cutting energy use. And then their association is off fighting, you know, any kind of regulation that would help them do that. So it it is a, it is a problem, but they're being called out on it more. There's a group called influencemap.org. There's people tracking it. This comes back to that transparency thing. Transparency is incredibly powerful. And if you can bring the data out and say, look, this is what you're doing and make it a public discussion, it's much harder to say, oh, we didn't realize. So so it sounds like we, we need sort of a more ground up, bottoms up effort from the people, the public, the, the, yeah. you know, calling their representatives or calling the companies and telling them to pressure, whether it's the association or whatever, to, to try to change. Or would it be more effective when it comes to a top down policy approach if we come in with the, with a better administration? Because I don't know, because um, we were doing the research and it seems that two cabinet positions uh, that with the most influence on environmental policy, arguably, you know, the administrator of the EPA and the Secretary of Interior have been filled by former fossil fuel lobbyists, Andrew Wheeler and David Bernhardt. So uh, I don't know, do you have a take on, on, on um, you know, the, whether it's it should come from a top-down approach, bottoms up? How, well, how okay, f- I guess we can talk about the, the appointees. Um, it's bad. I mean, I don't know, there's, there's only so many ways to say this, right? I mean, you can't, it's, it is giving the fox, you know, the the purview of the chicken coop, right? It's it's ridiculous. Um, there's been an attack. I mean, we, it's been reported somewhat. Um, there's so much more attention, I think, on the Paris Climate Accord and pulling out. The most effective thing I think this administration's done um, across all their activities has really been dismantling a lot of the protections of the EPA, really working very hard to make it um, harder to uh, regulate um, companies to, um, you can just, you know, you don't have to change the law sometimes. You can just not not do as much oversight. You cannot pursue companies for doing something wrong. And there was a story in the news a week ago that it got so much less attention than it should that particulate matter in the air, air pollution was getting better and better and better through improved technology and regulation. And under the new administration for the last few years, as they've diminished these, these regulations and let companies, you know, emit more, particulate matter rose. And the estimate is that last year, um, 10,000 people more died because of it. I just want to just stop and think about that for a second. That's like three 9-11s of people dying from air pollution. Every year, according to the World Health Organization, 7 million people die of air pollution. So this stuff matters. And, and it's always, again, portrayed as you know an EPA regulation or ways that clean the air, clean the water is somehow expensive and never takes into account the cost to health and the cost to the health system. In fact, you know, really strong air quality laws are the most profitable laws you can come up with because they cut so much cost down the road in healthcare, in strokes, in heart attacks, in people having asthma problems. It's, it's so straightforward. Um, so look, having people that were lobbyists for these industries is just ridiculous as, you know, in these bodies that are supposed to be kind of caring for the commons, the interior, our lands, and the EPA, our air and water fundamentally. 
Um, but look, we need we need better top down. We need you know you know better people in in charge of these administrations. And then yeah, the bottom up matters. I mean, you guys have seen I think what's going on with um, you know kids a little younger than you guys, but the, the the teens that are marching around the world, led by you know this very small little woman from from <laughs> Greta Sweden, Greta Thunberg. <laughs> Is unbelievably powerful. Her voice is huge, and she did it all in like a year. It's incredible what she's created, and that that group, that generation, um, is speaking out very uh, loudly. And the marches have been big. I think they matter. They affect companies. People, they, the companies feel it from their employees. There's companies increasingly helping their employees leave, like Patagonia again, shut down their stores, let people go march. Like there's companies doing more and more of this kind of stuff to let their people be active. My, that matters. My worry is the is the sort of the partisanship that we're seeing right yeah. now. That kind of people sort of shove the issue of climate change on the side or sort of mix it with political matters. I don't know. So I was talking yeah. to one of my conservative friends, and he was saying, "My roommate's dad doesn't believe in any of this stuff, right. this climate stuff, because he feels like this is an attack." On the conservatives on the right, by instigated by the left or something, right. there's sort of some sort of ultimate political agenda there. So it's not that they don't recognize the fact; they recognize the fact that the climate is changing and it's bad, but but they just don't feel you know uh, encouraged or motivated enough politically yeah. to agree with the left or anything. Well, look, it's so. a really big issue, and it's been a problem in particular in the U.S. You know, for the last 20, 30 years. Um, so I was invited today to come down to Princeton in part by a group called Sea Change Conversations that's um, run by some women that live in Princeton. And they, their mission is to kind of reach out mainly to conservatives and moderates about climate change. There's a long history to this um, that is kind of fascinating but also unfortunate. Uh, we should – I mean just to go back a little bit, the, the most important environmental laws ever created in the world and that everybody else copied were the early laws in the early 70s all signed by Nixon, Republican. Um, the – Best update to those laws was the new kind of air, uh, you know, Clean Air Act in '90, signed by George Bush Sr. Republicans actually um, came up with a lot of the market-based tools and mechanisms to fight environmental issues. There was this concerted effort to go back to oil and gas. There was a concerted effort, well documented, from Exxon in particular, the Koch brothers, um, over 30 years to to sow doubt, to tell people that climate science isn't isn't real. And they, they pursued it into kind of um, partisan means. But there was this kind of pivot point, I think, in particular in about 06 when Al Gore came out with Inconvenient Truth. And he got a Nobel Prize for it. He raised awareness around the world about the emergency of climate change. He did good work. But in the U.S., it became, oh, that's an Al Gore thing. And he was a VP. He was the, the candidate from the Democratic side for a contentious election. And it really started to polarize. It wasn't that I think he tried to polarize. It was just who he was. Um, and the messenger kind of got shot. And so it turned into something that, and the way I think about it is that climate change is fundamentally a scientific issue. It is a science question. Um, it's a science question with political or policy ramifications. How do we handle it? What kinds of tools do we use? And what a concerted effort kind of on misinformation has done is to turn it into a purely political issue. So you think, oh, I'm, it's my tribe. I, I only believe in it if I'm a Democrat, and I don't if I'm a Republican. It's kind of lunacy, right? I mean, you don't see that on most science issues. Um, and I, it's very hard to break out of that. But we need to really desperately to get to bipartisan solutions. We need everybody on board. I mean, I'm happy to debate the tools we use. Is a price on carbon the best way? Is, is you know, completely free markets the best? What's the best tools? We have to get over debating whether it's happening. Um, and as I said, in business, that debate's kind of over. 
So there's only one real place that debate's happening, and it's in the U.S., in Washington, D.C., you know, in the Congress. It's not even happening at the local level. Like, there's Florida districts where the Republicans have the, the seats and the local seats are Republican, and they're talking about climate change because the water is coming up over their ankles. Like, it's just at the local level, it's much less, much less partisan. Um, but this is a big problem, and I think the only way you deal with this is you talk to your friends individually and find a way to talk to them about it that says this isn't about your party. I think that was a fascinating example, the Al Gore Inconvenient Truth. I I remember as a seven or eight-year-old watching that and and donating and getting a little polar bear and loving it. So Now you're making me feel old. That was a really (laughs) poignant example for me. I think I still have that polar bear. And that was a real moment in my life where I started to think more about my own personal decisions, uh, what I was going to do to help solve this and and possibly what I could do moving forward to to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Were you guys born in the two thousands? No, no, nineteen. Uh, we are we are what, what's called Gen Z. I don't even know what those. You're right on the border. I mean, you the guys border. are right um, on the border. Millennials, whatever. But I think freshmen now are born yes. in this. Freshmen are this, in this century. century. Yes. Wow. That's creepy. It is. It's <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. Um, this is kind of on the millennial trends, and we're changing tracks just a little bit. But ESG stocks are something that uh, has become increasingly popular. And I think, uh, from what I understand, it's been increasingly targeted at younger people, yeah. those who are environmentally conscious, those who feel the need to uh, uh, participate in some way in this in this climate change debate. So what do you think of these ESG funds and stocks yeah. and how fundamentally different does this uh, or how, how does this fundamentally change investing as you see it? Yeah. So just to clarify for, I guess, people who don't know ESGs, environmental, oh, yes. social and governance, mm-hmm. it, it's a category of um, investing where, you know, uh, investors or fund managers try to seek out companies they think are doing better on environmental, social issues or governance, which means executive pay, board structure, those kinds of things. Um, actually, the, the term that the banks have started using is sustainable investing. They've started to move away from the ESG term. Look, it's a good sign. Um, the the banks or the investors have been kind of a lagging indicator for years, at least on the analyst side. The pressure on companies has been all about quarters, you know, quarterly performance. The institutional investors, the guys you know running huge funds and you know things like California State Pension or Norwegian Sovereign Fund, they've been thinking longer term and pushing on this for years. But there has been this huge increase um, in the last couple of years of creating these funds that screen um, and try to find companies doing the best on ESG issues. And it's been the biggest change in my business is um, I speak around the world. And in the last year or two, majority of my talks have been in the financial world. And it used to be kind of none of them. And a lot of it is they're launching these new products. I come and speak often at an event for their customers and kind of lay out the megatrends and what's going on. And what I've heard from these banks is exactly what you said. They've heard from their private wealth customers, so you know the really rich families, that they want to know where their money's coming from. And it's really the younger members of those families. So picture a rich family. Grandpa's got all the money, but there's thir- there's the number I've heard is thirty trillion dollars is going to be inherited by Gen X and and millennials over the next twenty years as as the boomers die. It's a lot of money. Um, and the younger, the grandson or granddaughter, the millennial is going. I, you know, we're really rich. Um, what's our money for? Like, what are we, where's it going? And, and show me stuff that gives me impact. So they talk about impact investing. I don't think all the funds being created, they know exactly how they're thinking about it or what they're doing. Um, and there's still this kind of fundamental question, just like in business about, oh, is this all 
you know, anti-business, they think, oh, does sustainable stuff underperform? They're always asking that question, and it's, I think it's kind of the wrong question, but it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough issue for them. Uh, I do want to play devil's advocate here, yeah. uh, as, I, as I always try to do on, sure. my, on my show. Um, so I just read this uh, Matt Levine's recent Bloomberg opinion piece called ESG Stocks Are Graded on a Curve. Uh, a couple of days ago, and he wrote that, and I quote, the highest ESG-rated companies, in your, so the, the grading is on a curve. Um, if there's a whole sector that's not particularly environmentally conscious, then you just invest in the least bad company in that sector. You, you couldn't do it the other way, because if you exclude the whole sector just because it's bad for the environment, then you wouldn't own the same stocks at the broad market, and you just your fund wouldn't have the same return as S&P 500 if the oil and gas companies do really well. So what those ESG funds do is that they would pick the least environmentally bad companies within those sectors right. uh, and still put the ESG on the name so that they're still able to have decent returns. Um, and and um, I don't know, it, it just feels like so much narrative is surrounded. Oh, we got to do impact investing, ESGs, stocks, and funds, but are they actually like as good as they sound? I don't know. Yeah, um, now you're getting into one of my favorite topics. So when I've spoken to these banks, I've kind of hit on this question. Um, because they do constantly ask, do do sustainable companies out do sustainable investing funds outperform? And I just want to make a, a basic point, which is, if there was a investment method where you knew it always outperformed, every dollar in the market would go to that. So it's it's actually a ridiculous question. Nobody's asked that about any other investment strategy. You don't go, we started a tech fund and we can prove that it will always outperform. Nobody can promise that. So it's a really strange question that you only seem to ask about sustainability. And again, there's this assumption, and you hear this thing about, oh, if we only if we screen out some, then we change the return. Well, yes, you change the beta, you change some of the variability, but that's true of everything that isn't just buying the index. Any a tech fund, a healthcare fund, you are changing because it's a subset, the variability. It won't match the total market. And it might underperform, it might overperform, right? There's nothing inherently that says if you choose sustainability companies. By doing that, you're definitely hurting return, right? But but that is kind of the result, right? I mean, no. ESG funds sometimes do tend to no. On average, they've outperformed. I mean, like, it, and there's plenty of meta studies, studies of studies, they've done fine. The the it's the wrong question. And so there was a really great study out of um, some Harvard professors four or five years ago where they said, "This is the weirdest way to ask this question. What we should be looking at is the companies that do sustainability or ESG well." And how are they performing? So they looked at the companies that were managing their most material issues, and that's the kind of accounting term for the things that have the greatest impact on your business. So in different sectors, there's different issues on sustainability that matter to them, right? There's For energy companies, it's going to be carbon footprint. For food, it might be health and sugar and you know other issues. They, and they said, they, they definitively showed that the companies that were clearly managing the most material issues well were outperforming the market. Goldman Sachs had a study that kind of looked at the reverse and said the ones that were not doing well on their key issues underperformed. So it's really like all funds, it's the companies that do it well, right? So you say tech companies, oh, we shouldn't invest in tech because there's a tech boom. Which tech? Which ones make sense to invest in? It's the same question. And we and we kind of put this burden on, on ESG like it, they're not graded on a curve. If anything, they're constantly being you know put in this bucket of they must be underperforming. And it's weird because, again, if you had divested from coal 10 years ago when a lot of people started asking, you would have saved a lot of money. Those, those stocks went down 90%. A lot of them are bankrupt. I think the same will be true of a lot of fossil fuel companies. But 
the the method that in that article you read where you you take the better performing in each sector that's kind of been what's happened until more recently is they haven't screened out whole categories it's been like there's the Dow Jones sustainability index there's all these indices that rank and they rank within a sector and that's the same thing that happens in a lot of other lists fortune most admired companies you know like there's always like within a sector who's doing the best and i think that's a investment method as well you don't have to necessarily you know, there's a lot of screens for you know guns weapons you know there's there's lots of kind of funds that just don't do certain things like tobacco um, but within the broader sectors you can choose the best performing within that and that's a method, or you can say we're just not going to be in fossil fuels. No, t- totally. I, I think that was a great response to Matt Levine, and and I, I also want to just make a quick note about. So yeah. I actually just got this chart from Deutsche Bank's chief economist Torsten Sag, who was on our show, and he he said um, fees on ESG funds are very similar to fees on conventional funds. Uh, so ESG investing is actually not more expensive uh, than the fees of sort of retail, right. sort of other funds that you well, do. Well, anything so, that so, yeah. charges you fees, arguably, I mean. There's been people just saying buy index funds, right? That's Bogle. There's guys who've been around for 70 years saying this that you should just. Buy. You know that on average, um, there's not more than half of the fund managers that outperform an index. Like you're better off putting your money basically in index funds, which is what the big institutional investors like BlackRock and Vanguard are. They're just index funds, um, and so you don't really need to pay a lot for management. But if you're looking for this this impact or this ESG, so that you can feel like your money is doing good. Um, and you don't ask only the question, what's the return? Again, it could outperform, it could underperform, but you're asking to feel like your money is going in the right direction, just like you feel about the, the things you buy day to day. You might buy organic food because you think it's healthy or you think it's better for the environment. Um, you might reduce your meat meals because you want to help the environment or reduce animal cruelty, whatever. You can do the same with your money. And it's just this assumption that, you know, we should always be maximizing return no matter what without asking where does our money go. Um, again, not saying it's going to underperform, could outperform. But you can put a moral screen or a personal screen over your money just like you do on on the things you buy day to day. And uh, do you think, looking at that from an individualistic standpoint, do you think that that is a good way to to help contribute to this? Do you believe that companies are going to respond and that's something as a consumer, as an investor that that makes a positive difference. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, well, it's an it's been an interesting question for a long time with the divestment movement. I mean, you know, we're on a campus and there's been a lot of push around um, the world. And it's always a question of whether it changes the dynamics or the economics for a company. It, it's not clear that's exactly what happens. But, you know, the divestment movement is partly, again, kind of a moral stance to say um, these companies are are not ones that are that are providing for a future that's healthy and thriving for us. And they're, they're kind of undermining our future and we don't want to support them. We don't want to put our money into them. Um, and I think it, it's, it's exactly what happened with apartheid, you know, 30 years ago and the universities pulled money out. It's not like that exactly changed things, but it sends a signal. Um, and I think that's been the argument really from the divestment movement all along is you're not going to sink Exxon by universities, you know, moving their funds, but it says something about, you know, we don't believe that we should be a part of this this sector that's you know moving us in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to take a quick pivot, not a big pivot. Okay, no pun intended. A little pivot, little pivot here. Uh, I would love to hear. We we talked a lot about domestic politics, sort of the partisanship, all that we, stuff. What about what about 
international geopolitics. You know, yeah. I mean, even Trump has. To, I was watching this quick video. He was saying, uh, sending troops. We we want the oil. We we gotta protect the oil. And I mean, arguably, the whole the people have this whole theory how you know the the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan was all about the oil and everything. And, and I think it's still a pretty hot topic today. I mean, given the tension uh, with Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, in the yeah. region, and also the the whole IPO. Thing was Aramco. I don't know if you're following、uh, any of those things at all, but、uh, yeah, would love to hear your thoughts on some of those matter. I mean,、uh, look, I'm not a policy guy per se, but you know, it's let's just say that most. I mean, this is overly simplistic. Most wars throughout history have been resource wars, right? Like that's what it's always. It's what it's almost always about. It's not great to hear a president saying we're going for the oil. Like these are sovereign nations. <laughs> The U.S. has become the. I think we're now the largest energy producer in the world. Like we,、yeah. we've okay, great, but we're now the largest of、um, the the kinds of products and energy that are going to disappear. So it's like it's like becoming the greatest and largest typewriter producer right before the PCs came out. It's like I'm not sure how good that is for our economy. Luckily, we have more people now working in the U.S. Way more in solar, wind, than in fossil fuels. I don't think people realize how how few people actually work. Say in coal mining, you know, we—it's always like the most political football about coal miners. There's like 50,000 people that kind of dig underground.、Um, that number has been dropping for years, and it's not just reduction in coal; it's automation and all of that. Globally, you know, there's a lot of the same dynamics. The countries that、um, have natural resources, like Australia, is also kind of not as fond of climate action because they've got a lot of coal.、Um, you know, and China, same thing. They need coal, but they're also building renewables. I, look, the the global discussion is critical. I think the Paris Climate Accord was a critical moment in human history. It's sad that we're saying we're we're out of it.、Um, but look, you know, when the president said we're we're leaving the Paris Climate Accord, basically that same day,、um, a bunch of companies ran a full page ad in the Journal saying we want in, and a bunch of states said we're staying. So like, actually, the majority of the country's GDP. By state and by company, have told the world we're still doing this. So there's a weird dynamic on the global stage now, where the U.S. has a bifurcated message,、um, and the rest of the world is mostly unified. Every other country in the world is still in the Paris Climate Accord and is planning to cut their emissions and rethink their energy systems. And I think it's mostly working. We're not hitting the targets we need to. A lot of countries are not going to make their own targets, but. We had to start somewhere. You had to get everyone on the same page, saying we're going to we're going to do something. Uh, uh, just a quick follow up from, from that, because I guess if you were saying how most wars are sort of resource wars, right?、Yeah. You go on there and you get the oil fields. So if let's say twenty years down the road, people are all using renewable energy, solar panels, all that stuff. I mean, is, are there still a, will there still be resources war at, at all? Because I mean, then you could argue that、uh, when I actually invade a country, there's nothing there for me to really pick up.、Right? Well, except for remember, even.、Um, You know, clean energy electrons are non-physical, but not the equipment. Right? You need batteries that has lithium, cobalt. There's real metals, right? There's always going to be mining. There's rare earth metals. China has like ninety something percent of some of those metals. So yeah, there, and and the resource war that I'm most worried about, that I think most you know military and kind of political people are worried about, is water. I think the water wars could be real,、um, and they're. And they're serious around the world. So, look, there's still stuff.、Um, even the cloud. Everyone likes to pretend the cloud is so light, but you know, data centers use a lot of energy. They have a lot of material. So, we're still going to need stuff.、Um, but what does happen, I think, that we have to be wary of is think about the petro dictatorships. You know, in the Middle East, in Russia, when there's no more oil,、um, 
what's left there, what's their economy. A few of the oil countries like United Arab Emirates um, have been working on this, trying to build a future for their, their people that's not oil. Um, even Saudi Arabia has a huge solar um, goal for building a lot of solar. So these countries are facing, there was a famous statement years ago from one of the sheiks saying um, the Stone Age didn't end for lack of stones. You know, they know that we will stop using fossil fuels at some point. I, I, I want to quickly throw in a, a quick anecdote. So I was t- having brunch with my friend and he was saying how the whole IPO of the Saudi Arabia Aramco yeah. um, state oil company is that they're realizing uh, sort of the oil era is coming to an end. They need to cash out and they've right. got to go public and, and get the money out of there or they're not going to be in a company that exists, you know, like, you know, 10 years or so. But So right. it's, it's yeah. maybe more than 10, but I think this is all... There's a kind of broader point that we as humans, we're really bad at thinking exponentially. It's just part of one of our cognitive biases. We think linearly. There's been projections from the International Energy Agency every year about how much renewables will be built, and they keep getting it wrong. For like 12, 13 years, they've gotten it systematically wrong. They keep drawing this straight line forward, and the line keeps curving up. And I don't think people realize how powerful exponential growth really is. And when you start to see countries are basically banning internal combustion engines by 2030. But no one's going to really want to buy one anyways because an electric vehicle is going to be cheaper to operate, cheaper to buy, um, and your solar panels on your roof are going to power it anyways. It, it, we're going to move away from oil f- so much faster than, than people realize. Um, it doesn't mean there's not going to be oil for a long time. We need to fly. That still takes oil. But there's actually electric planes being built for short haul. You know, There's going to be a deeper change than, than people realize. I don't know if you know what's going on in China. Like they've put so many uh, electric buses on the road. Shenzhen has an entirely electric bus fleet. So this isn't future, right? This is now. It's possible. And and those electric buses are not using oil, right? So uh, the oil companies they know this. They got to do their scenarios and realize there's a rapid decline coming. I don't know how prepared they are. Uh, b- before we wrap up, I just there's one question that I kind of want to that's has been haunting on my m- mind for for a while. <laughs> so about please this get it out. It's haunting climate, you. climate change thing. Yeah. I've heard a lot of opinions <clears throat> saying climate change is something that requires global action. Right? Yeah. You, you can't. No country can do it alone. However, just given the kind of geopolitical conflict we're seeing, given the kind of the ideological differences, rise of populism, inequality, all the kinds of issues that's flying around right today, it is just very very hard. Uh, to see countries like the U.S. and China uh, and, and Russia and Germany, all, all those countries sort of coming together and say, we're going to do this. I mean, right. th- and that's why people are saying we're, we're screwed. I mean, they, <laughs> I mean they're, 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 just because the, the political inability to, to get together. Well, so there's, there's two big forces that will drive us in a good way. I mean, I, I don't, you know, a lot of this conversation can sound really pessimistic, but I think, th- again, the clean economy is something to be really optimistic about. There's two forces that are going to drive us you know, away from carbon. The political, which we do need, and the economic. And as I said, the economics are moving, you know, irrevocably. They're, they're moving. So again, there's this assumption, and you hear it so often about why, you know, why should America go green if China's not, which is a wrong assumption on many levels, they are, because it'll be a disadvantage. It's not a disadvantage. It's an, it's an advantage. It saves us money. It saves us health. It makes our, our lives better. Um, and so if the things we want to do for, for climate we want to do anyways. And this is the fundamental principle of corporate sustainability and acting on climate is the things that make your business more sustainable, things that make the country more sustainable, you want to do most of them anyways. So this debate about whether you believe about climate change, it almost doesn't matter, right? It's 
if you want to go to clean energy, clean vehicles, smarter buildings, smarter transportation systems, because they're, they're just better and save money, what are we talking about? You know, why are we going, oh, I shouldn't do that because Ch China is probably thrilled that we've slowed down on our climate action because they're building the industries of the future, right? They're investing in, in low carbon technologies and AI. Um, and they're, they're probably getting there quicker than we are right now. Um, so we're going. We're, we're at a disadvantage by holding on to older technologies. That's always been a bad idea. So this is good for us. And and yes, the global political scene is tough, but there is a competition. There is kind of a race to the top that's that's begun, um, both to attract talent, people, um, money. You know, companies want to go operate in a place that runs well, is cleaner. You know, like the countries that are doing this better, I think are going to just attract more capital and people and companies and just keep growing. So, you know, this is all good for us to compete on this. So, I'm, I, you know, I'm optimistic on that front. But yeah, the global political scene, it's tough, right? It's very, very tough. It's kind of amazing that the Paris Climate Accords even happened. Um, but they did. You know, it's kind of the first time in human history that everybody on the planet agreed to something. Um, really. I mean, it's kind of an amazing moment. And, you know, we're trying to throw a monkey wrench in from the U.S., but... We'll see what happens in the 2020 election. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it's important to remember that the the seed, seeds were sown for the Paris Climate Accords a good bit beforehand. Like there was international cooperation on this front. There were uh, Sino-Soviet agreements and Sino-American agreements that were moving the ball forward in yeah. a really effective way. So we're going to move towards our wrap-up now as the last sure. few minutes of the interview comes to a close. Uh, so you hold degrees from some of the best universities in the world, including an undergraduate degree from Princeton University, an MBA from Columbia, and a Master's of Environmental Management from Yale. Could you speak a little bit to what motivated you to get the combination of an MBA and a Master's of Environmental Management, and and how do you how you think these mm. educational experiences have impacted your career? Uh, it's a it's a good question. Look, having a Princeton degree is always nice. It <laughs> looks good on the resume and all that. Um, uh, and I have a junior in high school now, so we're, I don't know how you get into these schools anymore. I mean, it's a totally different world. Um, you guys are very lucky. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, acceptance rates are just effectively zero. <laughs> we're um, lucky. Yeah. Yeah. We have a good name. That's really, I thought, <laughs> yeah, I don't, you had, I don't they really just had to take you tiger. Right. Exactly. So, um, now look, I, you say I got an MBA and a master's in environmental management separately because I didn't have kind of my act together to know this is the path I was going on when I got the MBA. I got the MBA while I was working. I did the executive MBA at Columbia which was an every other Friday, Saturday thing. It was a full MBA, but you did it while working. And then I kind of had this shift, you know, after the dot-com crash and things were all in flux and realized, okay, I want to try to marry this passion I have about the environment or about resources or where, you know, I've always been very practical about this and wanting to see a world that functions well. And to me, a sustainable world just functions better. And so I went back to school to get the environmental degree. Had I known earlier you know, there are joint degrees now. I mean, there's have been for years, like Yale has a joint MBA and environmental degree. It would have been good to do it at the same time. But I think all of these things have really mattered. So when I came out, when I got to Yale, um, I think I was, I think I was the first person ever to arrive at that environmental program with an MBA. Um, if, if not the first, maybe one of the few. And they didn't know what to do with me, actually. I applied for a one-year master's there that was for accelerated people in the environment. I had no environmental background, but I said, I have an MBA. And you do a three-year program with the MBA. And so they kind of took me not knowing what the hell to do with me. But having those degrees or having those, those different experiences, I think, has mattered a lot. So that when I started working with a professor at Yale to write green to gold, 
I came at it from an MBA perspective, from a business perspective, wanting to write a a good to great kind of easy to read business book that nobody had ever done in the field. So these educational experiences have impacted my career tremendously, you know, to try to marry these these different areas. It's still a very it's still a fairly rare Venn diagram of environmental and, and business. And in reality, when I am speaking to business, like pure business and a, and, a, and a definitely more kind of fiscally conservative side of the world, which is business, I'm a hippie, I'm a greenie. And when I'm talking to students, activists, whatever, I'm a sellout. I work with business. So I am like, I don't make anybody happy. Um, there's this little Venn diagram. And so just having the, both those degrees has really mattered for me to kind of have credibility in myself and, and you know, feel like I kind of have knowledge about these things and to kind of say to the world, you can put these two together. So it matters. And yeah, I mean, the Princeton economics degree, it's always great because, you know, people will call you out on, you want to do green stuff. What do you know? I mean, I've, I've been on Twitter and someone's like, where's your economic, you know, where did you get your economics degree? I'm like, Princeton, you know, like it's just, it's easy to call out people. And it's really important to say business people get this stuff. And that's part of what I think I've brought to this domain for, for years is I look like a business guy, I sound like one, I dress in a suit, you know, like I don't scare the business people about uh, hippies coming in to, to talk. So that, that I sounds think it great. helps. Yeah. That, that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, so I guess the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I want to ask you, I guess on one hand, are you pessimistic or optimistic about whether we can sort of resolve the climate crisis given the current climate? I mean, obviously you'll say optimistic, I guess. I mean, it would be, it would be very weird for you to, you know, come to, after all this feel that, that we, the conversation that you say you're pessimistic. But what about, you know, in combination with, um, you know, short term with this current climate that we're in? And also, what do you what would you say is the policy punchline here? Yeah. So. Yeah. I can't. It depends. I, I I don't always feel very optimistic. Um, I give these talks, and I'm explaining to people the climate, how serious it is. And at the end of the talk, I constantly get people saying, "Oh, you sounded so optimistic." And I said, "Really? That's what you heard from that?" Because I thought I was explaining like we've got some serious problems. But I talk about the clean economy and companies doing stuff. Look, I, I think there's always a great line about being. You can be pessimistic in the short run and optimistic in the long run, and there's. There's some aspect of that. And there's, you know, versions of that with technology that we always kind of overestimate what will happen in the short run and underestimate, you know, the long run. It is it is that kind of exponential thing. I, I do have to give everyone the, the caveat that um, we've locked in some damage now. And I think we have to acknowledge that. It's not being a downer. It's not – it's just being factual. I grew up in South Florida. I don't believe Miami's going to make it. I just don't. I think the evidence shows and the way we're still emitting – you can't build a wall. You can't build a wall big enough to save some of these places that are already getting dry day flooding. That's a bad sign. Look at Venice this past week, higher water levels than ever. We're going to lose some places in the world and we're going to lose most of the coral. We're losing species really fast. So this is the dark stuff. We have to accept that. I think there's a grief period. I think as a species, as a people, we have to go, okay, we've screwed up some things, but we have an incredible capacity for innovation and for coming together when we need to. We did to fight fascism and Nazism as a world, we can fight things. And um, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to become a clean grid, clean transportation, clean buildings. We're going to figure out how to live with a food system that feeds everyone and has a smaller footprint. We're going to do all that. Um, but we have to accept the things that we lose and figure out how to manage that and 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 move on. So yeah, I'm optimistic in the long run. But we we're going to have we're going to face some problems, and we got to come together to do that. Um, and I do, I guess, believe. You know, while we're in this swing towards every man for himself, we will swing back. And you see shoots and leaves of it 
around the world, even in this country. I think the rise of women, grassroots groups and women, um, is incredibly powerful here and I think has been underestimated for what that's doing to the country to make it a more equitable place, a more open-minded place, and a place that can come together. Um, and I think, you know, we will demonstrate some of it to the rest of the world. And, you know, we're going to come together. I'm not sure how it's all going to happen, but these conversations matter. And your generation is going to have to push really hard. You're facing some challenges. You're going to have to push the old guys um, out of the way. And, and you know, the okay, this is okay. This is the okay boomer time, right? This is like, it's time for, you know, millennials and Gen Z to kind of really make their, their demands known. And then we'll make it. And, and your policy punchline? Oh, the policy punchline. Um, well, I, I guess I'm curious, what is a, uh, what's an example of a policy punchline? But I, I'd say, you know, as always, that companies now, that, my punchline is companies have to take an active role in policy pro-climate, not just fighting regulation, which is what they've always been about, but pro-climate, you know, and putting a price on carbon is the fundamental question. Fixing the externality problem that I learned about in every econ class, fixing the market breakdown, the fundamental market breakdown that we don't price carbon. It's the biggest market breakdown in history, and we can fix it. Oh, that's a very that's positive. Terrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. terrific. Uh, well, that that wraps it up, I okay. guess. Uh, thanks so much for for being in the studio with us Thank today. Thank you, Andrew, thanks for having and, me. And and Owen, thanks for joining me as well. It was a great conversation. Of course, I really enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully, we can continue the dialogue. Uh, you guys should check out um, Andrew's book, uh, the the Big Pivot: Green to Gold. Uh, and green recovery. Those three books are, I assume, available on your website. Yep. On uh, what's the, what's your website? Andrew AndrewWinston.com. I'm launching a new version of it in the next couple of weeks. It'll look fresher and you know, more modern. So yeah, yeah, come to AndrewWinston.com. Sign up for my blog. Buy the books at Amazon and all fine stores around the world. This is very, very great conversation. Thanks so much for, for, for joining us again. Thank today. you. Thank you. Uh, and and to our listeners, uh, thanks so much for listening today. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify. Um, SoundCloud, visit us on policypunchline.com and uh, rate and review us. Uh, look forward to uh, seeing you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.